Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. If you've been waiting to hear us disagree on a topic strongly, today's your day. We're talking ethical standards in politics and whether political idealism is important or a fantasy. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode, and we, before we get started, we wanted to ask everyone to check out our new blog post on the best of season one. We rounded up y'all's favorite episodes, our favorite episodes at moments, and it's a great introduction to Pantsuit Politics if you're just now joining our community. And if you are in our community, thanks, welcome, and come join us on Facebook and Twitter at Pantsuit Politic. And thank you so much to Annie for the idea to create this blog post. It was a lot of fun, although kind of hard. Um Bren said that it was like choosing his favorite children, which yeah, we really appreciated. So uh, today in the Pearl, Sarah, I thought we should talk about how both of the major party candidates gave economic policy speeches last week. 
I hope we didn't need to actually watch the speeches to talk about it because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, so NPR has a really good sort of side by side of the two comparing them on major themes. And I thought we could go through those major themes and just talk about their different positions. So on trade, uh, both of both candidates claim to oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and both essentially, I, I'm so amused by the language that came out of both of these speeches on trade, because basically they both said, we're only going to do trade deals with no downside. Well, that seems Hil- unrealistic. <laughs> I think it does, too. Hillary Clinton talked about how we do have to engage with the world, so she spoke, I think, on Earth for a second about that, but then said that she would oppose any trade deal that kills jobs or lowers wages. And Trump said that he is going to renegotiate NAFTA or exit it if we can't get a good deal. And he's only going to have trade deals that protect against currency manipulation and impose tariffs to punish countries that are cheating, which he characterizes as unfairly subsidizing exports. If you are new to the trade conversation, we're going to link in our show notes the episode that we did on trade. We also did a primer on trade where we went through and tried to just explain some fundamental concepts. But I think that both of us would say this is a pretty unrealistic and pandering way for both of these candidates to to speak. I mean, we can't have trade agreements that don't lower wages for anyone. That's, that's just not reality. The second topic that we can pull out of both speeches is that both candidates want to invest heavily in infrastructure And I give that That a thumbs up. That sounds positive. Yeah. (laughs) Thumbs up on infrastructure spending, because as we've discussed a number of times on the show, like our country is badly in need of infrastructure upgrades. Now, devil's in the details on that, right? But I'm glad that it's a topic that's being discussed. Taxes is the next subject that we wanted to discuss. So Donald Trump wants an across-the-board tax reduction for everyone especially middle-income families. Hillary Clinton advocates increasing taxes on the wealthiest Americans and the Buffett rule, which you've probably heard of. Warren Buffett gave a speech when he talked about how his effective tax rate is lower than his secretary's, and that doesn't seem right. So the the proposed Buffett rule is a minimum tax rate of 30% on people making more than $1 million per year. A line in a lot of Clinton's speeches lately has been that she knows how she's going to pay for everything that she's doing. It's by making the wealthiest Americans pay their fair share. Yeah. I have major issues with this, but let me hear your perspective first. I think she says that because nobody really wants to have her sit down and say, okay, well, we're going to cut this program. We're going to do this. We're going to do this tax loophole and we're going to do this. Like, I mean, I think it's a throwaway line because nobody, most people really don't want to get into the calculus of how all this is going to get paid for because it's super complicated it is super complicated i just find this which is why those like things 15 percent are like i'm just gonna you know whatever didn't ben carson have some ridiculous who was all gonna fit it all in the one card who had the postcard tax return well, Cruise? Ted Cruz had the postcard, and then if you go in the Wayback Machine, Herman Cain had the 999 plan, right? He was going to oh, make it really yeah. simple. Uh, that kind of thing. Like, I know that's appealing, but like, mm-mm. 
No, I agree. And and as you know, I wanted to throw something at my television every time I heard about the postcard because that, that is just not going to happen. But here's what bothers me. Well, a bunch of things bother me. But one, it just seems super disingenuous to talk about increasing taxes on the wealthiest Americans as though Hillary Clinton is not one of them. <laughs> like, you know, just it, it's like this demonization of that group and the tone. And the other thing is, we could take this is a point that my friend Tracy makes, and I did some research today to kind of validate what she was saying. We could take practically all the income from the wealthiest people in America and not come close to what we need to fund the government and start to reduce our national debt. The idea that we have a group of people who aren't paying their fair share, and if they did, everything would be fine. It's just not true. Now, we have a revenue issue. We also have an expense issue, and we have to tackle both of those. I don't have any problem with the idea that someone making a million dollars a year ought to have an effective tax rate that is the same as or even more than people making much, much less than that. It's not that I think the wealthiest Americans should get away with no taxes, but I also think the way we define wealthy matters a lot. And there are people making a million dollars a year who are working like dogs for it and are still putting children through college and, and doing lots of things with that money that keep them from being like the super rich. I understand that's a ton of money, but that's a big difference from someone who is making a million dollars in interest every year and not having to work for it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. wealth versus income. That's a big topic. But I also think that these plans are, you know, even instituting something like the Buffett plan, I'd like to believe, especially, you know, hashtag Hillary as Hermione, that there are those sort of allowances, that it's not just this, I mean, I don't, I, I can't imagine she would have a blanket rule for almost anything, if nothing, be, if no other reason than she just loves the details so much. So, I mean, I think that their tax proposals or tax proposals in general is probably a whole um, episode on its own. What I found really interesting was... Donald, the one thing I did read a lot about at the speech was the Donald's um, proposal for childcare reform or to help families with the economic cost of childcare. And that, you know, I read a lot of things that like this has Ivanka's fingerprints all over it. And that he, his is a childcare tax credit, which would predominantly help more lower or middle and upper income people like Ivanka, whereas Hillary's proposals are different. And hopefully, you know, under our current system, people at the very bottom of the economic Ladder don't get a lot of help with child care because, of, you know, you got to make enough money to pay a lot of taxes for a tax credit to help you any. But I thought that was an interesting distinction and in how they both handled that issue as well. It's kind of a small distinction, though, in the context of the overall speech, because they're both basically using the tax code as a lever to try mm. to deal with how affordable child care is. Or yeah. Not. Just keeping the tax theme going on corporate taxes. Donald Trump is proposing just that all corporations pay 15 percent across the board. Clinton spoke about corporate taxes in the context of punishing corporations who take operations overseas. And my doesn't that sound familiar? Because that's something mm -hmm. we've heard from Donald Trump the whole campaign. I mean, what I think is most interesting, they both they both celebrated manufacturing. There's not a whole lot of daylight between these two positions. Now, certainly the implementation, the thought behind it, the articulation, but on the substance of economic policy, I think this is another moment in the campaign that highlights the fact that we don't have a real contest of ideas going. We have a contest of competence and personality and experience, but not of ideas. 
We always compliment the other party before we move on into our deeper discussion. So we got two great compliments for Republicans this week, which was exciting. Yeah, I love it. I like because you know, it's always not a struggle, but let's call it a treasure hunt to be a positive spin out for me every week. So I love it when you guys help out. We need we need some Republicans complimenting Democrats too, though, so Beth can get a break. The first one is from Bren, who sent us this amazing story about the mayor of Albuquerque, and his name is Richard Berry, and he has a great program helping homeless panhandlers on the street in which they come and get them. He, he had previously driven around and tried to help them, but instead of making them search out the work, the, little, the van literally drives around the town, picks up homeless panhandlers, pays them $9 an hour to help clean up the city, and feeds them lunch. So it's a really positive way to address panhandling, to get your city cleaned up, positive use of government. Here, here, Republican Mayor Richard Berry. I think it's amazing. My friend Amanda sent this to me as well, and she is, you know, very progressive. And she said, look, I feel like this is something that we both can totally get behind. And I said, absolutely. It gives people the dignity of work. As I read this story, you know, one person was quoted as saying, no one has said anything kind to me for 25 years. Aww. And you can just see how uplifting it is for these people to be a part of the community. This mayor spent like a year walking around just talking to people on the streets trying to figure out how to deal with this problem so hats off to him yeah it was awesome we also got a great message from danielle about marco rubio which i'll play now hi y'all this is danielle calling from pittsburgh although originally i'm from florida um i'm calling because i wanted to give a shout out to a member of the other side I am a proud Democrat, I would say very socially liberal, and I disagree with Marco Rubio on most everything. However, he did just give a speech recently in Florida talking about the intolerance that has been felt by the LGBT community, by those who identify themselves as Christian, and he warned about discrimination from Christians and actually quoted a verse from the Bible that says, do not judge or you will be judged, and asked them to consider the history of discrimination against gays as they move forward. So I thought that was really good, definitely not as far as I obviously would like him to go because he still um, considers marriage a, um, marriage between a man and a woman. However, I think this is a really nice step and a good gesture on his part. Thanks so much, y'all. All right, so my compliment this week is kind of a mundane-ish one, but I really respected this story. There is a Democratic state senator, Reuven Carlisle, in Washington state, who wrote an op-ed about why he opposes a measure designed to double a light rail in his region, and his particular district would have benefited hugely from funding this light rail. And he has been in favor of the project, like the whole way it's been going, but is now really concerned about the level of funding available for education in Washington state. I just really respected his 
transparency about the issue, his honesty about his own struggle because he believes in infrastructure spending, but he also thinks that education is really important. And this just is an example of the hard and gritty work that state legislators have to do. And the way that I think you can most effectively talk with your constituents about it. Like, I'm not in Washington state, so I have no idea the benefits of the light rail versus the state the school system is in. You know, I don't know what the right answer is on the merits of this, but I think his approach is so good. This is a lot of what we've talked about um, off the podcast, Sarah, about Matt Bevan. Like in Kentucky, our governor faces a real fiscal crisis and there are a ton of challenges. And he's gone in and done serious, you know, painful cuts. And maybe some of those cuts were the right cuts. We just haven't had a whole lot of communication or conversation about them in a way that helps us understand what the thinking is. And so that's what I thought this state senator did so beautifully in explaining his position. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsy Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer. In my personal opinion, 
in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So next up in the suit, we're going to tackle political realism versus political idealism. So I propose this as a topic because I encountered a passionate endorsement from RuPaul of Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party and a lot of interesting conversation surrounding this endorsement on the internet. But first, I'll just read it. I'm gonna, we're going to have to click explicit on this episode because he uses some salty language. I wish there was video so we could just have him reading it. But it was an interview he did with Vulture. So they, when asked how he felt about Hillary and the Democratic Party, RuPaul responded, I fucking love them. I have always loved them. And let me just say this. If you're a politician, not just in Washington, but in business and industry, you have to be a politician. There are a lot of things that you have to do that you're not proud of. There are a lot of compromises you have to make because it means that you can get this other thing over here. And if you think that you can go to fucking Washington and be rainbows and butterflies the whole time, you're living in a fucking fantasy world. So now having said that, think about what a female has to do with that. All of those compromises, all of that shit, double it by 10. And you get to understand who this woman is and how powerful, persuasive, brilliant, and resilient she is. Any female executive, anybody who has been put to the side, women, blacks, gays, for them to succeed in a white male-dominated culture is an act of brilliance, of resilience, of grit, of everything you can imagine. So what do I think of Hillary? I think she's fucking awesome. Is she in bed with Wall Street? God damn it, I sure hope so. You've got to dance with the devil, so which of the horrible people do you want? That's more of the question. Do you want a pompous braggart who doesn't know anything about diplomacy? Or do you want a badass bitch who knows how to get shit done? That's really the question. Uh, <laughs> so... I thought the endorsement did Rob, uh, RuPaul just if, if nothing else. I mean, I can hear him saying those things. It was amazing. It definitely sounds authentic. I'll give him yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, you know, I am increasingly in my old age a political realist. And a lot of the, uh, you know, Vox had a write-up of this and said, like, women, he's right. Like, women don't just have to balance the sort of typical expectations of politicians, but they have to balance the other load of stuff that comes along with any political system. And I just think about, I was telling somebody the other day, the position that people put public servants in as somebody who's running for office. Like basically what's what's asked of me the second I say, I think I might want to perform an act of public service and run for office is you have to beg for money to put your name out into the public sphere so people can act like you're a dog I mean, it's not really as bad on the level I'm on. People are really nice and complimentary of what I'm doing. But, I mean, there's also people that immediately insulted me before they knew me. And, you know, that's just running. Once you actually have to get in there and govern, like, obviously, um, I'm a little bit Hamilton obsessed right now. And there's a line, you know, when they're, fight- when they're fighting for the revolution, he wants to die in the war. And Washington says, dying is easy, young man, living is harder. And then once um, the second act closes, it doesn't close with them winning the war. It closes with them like, oh, now what are we going to do? Like, now we have to govern. And there's a line Washington says in the second act where he says, winning is easy, young man. Governing is harder. And so this sort of line really appeals to me because I think it's the reality of 
sort of um, what Yuval Levin talks about when he what he learned when he lived in the White House, which is by any by the time anything gets to you at that level, and probably at the Senate or m- m- a lot of other things, it's just you're drinking from a water hose. You have two difficult choices in which somebody is going to lose, and so you know the idea that let's give these people credit for the reality they face on a daily basis instead of acting like they need to be perfect human beings, especially women who make perfect choices that offend no one, that they never screw up, that they never make a bad decision. Just seems, it seems this very binary view of politicians and women politicians in general. Whereas if we allowed a lot more gray, I think it'd be more forgiving and better for everybody. So I agree with a lot of that. I agree that we are cruel to our public servants in a lot of ways. And perhaps our cruelty as a public has given our politicians some license to take, right? We we worry about the revolving door between Wall Street and K Street. I can see how people go through so much to get there that they feel somewhat entitled to profit from having been there once they've done it. I think- well, it's not just being there. It's the skill you develop from doing the job. I mean, it's a skill just like anything else. Right. So I think that we are unreasonable in our expectations or, or just mean, right? We're just mean mm-hmm. sometimes uh, to our public servants. I think that women do have to be better than men at just about anything to be recognized as competent at all. And I think Hillary Clinton is a brilliant person who knows how to get things done. So on board with all of that. Where I jump off the train here <laughs> is that I'm, I'm really growing weary of the idea that because lots of people have done the kinds of things that Hillary Clinton has done, we can't raise any questions about them. And I'm really growing weary of the idea that because Donald Trump is Hillary Clinton's opponent, we should just step back and say, she's perfect and he's horrible and it's done. There's no room for any gray around this. Like, I'm I'm exhausted with being told that just affiliating with the Republican Party at this point makes me a bad person because our nominee is an idiot and a racist. I mean, like, I, I don't have any nuance about Donald Trump at this point. I think that he does not deserve it. So we, we all know how I feel about Trump. But I also am getting really, really frustrated with sort of the moralizing from the Democratic side. And the other thing that I want to say about this is like, yes, it is harder on her because she's a woman. There is a point at which women are not served by harping on that too much. And I know how that sounds and I can feel the emails coming, (laughs) but like she, her work ethic speaks for itself. Her merit speaks for itself. Similarly to me, it's not good to say because she's a woman and because the expectations are higher, we cannot criticize her. She's made some bad decisions. And I think everyone just feels like she's gotten so much criticism. She's full up, like there can be no more. And that's not the arena. And I feel like she knows that. You know, but it's like all the the kind of noise around her that sends the message that because other people have done favors for people forever, we can't even discuss the latest round of emails showing favors being done in the State Department for the Clinton Foundation. You know, do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that my pushback with that is it's not that when people say, well, Colin Powell used email or proactively or, you know, Condi Rice had retrofitted confidential emails or whatever that, or if they say people take money. I mean, when I say other people have done it, the argument I'm making isn't that makes Hillary's judgment flawless. What I'm saying is then this is reflective of something bigger. It's not her bad judgment. It's how all people operate within the system and then that the issue might not be her but the system and that's how I feel about when people talk about Washington DC and Congress and politics in general you know that's why I get sort of salty about term limits the issue the issue isn't the personal character except for Donald Trump (laughs) but you know overall the issue with Washington isn't the personal character of the people there and if you removed every single member of Congress and replaced them you would have the same issues because the issue is the system don't hate the player hate the game you know and I think that's the point people are making when they point to other people have done this I think it can be both though I think that there is room to question personal judgment even as you acknowledge systemic issues my sort of threshold for when I'm going to call somebody at the le- operating at the level of Hillary Clinton, their personal judgment into effect, it's really high. I mean, it's just, it is. It's like, and it's sure, it's certainly not going to be like process stuff. It has to be, you made a call at the very top level and it was, now we see it's the wrong one. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think my threshold for when I'm just going to be like, well, that was bad judgment because I just don't, I guess my problem is too, like, Okay, then what? So if you think that Hillary Clinton made the wrong judgment about, let's say, the email, okay. So, so, I mean, not to be dismissive, but so what? I mean, are you not going to vote for her because of that? Do you think that that's reflective of the? I mean, I don't. I just feel like it's like such a such a weird calculus that then you decide she's going to do what as president. I mean, like, and does it discount the? a thousand other times that she's made the right call like I don't I don't know I just don't understand sort of weighing these individual choices at this level I, I don't know I guess I, I don't I just really don't know what it serves the conversation like okay so we say she makes the the right the wrong call the, okay then what's the next step in the conversation so to me it's not any individual call and it's usually not a policy decision where I would question someone's judgment I would never question. Hillary Clinton's decisions around the Benghazi issue, because you don't know. It's the same way I feel about the Bush administration and the decision to go into Iraq. I don't know what intelligence they saw, but I give a lot of benefit of the doubt to people in those situations. And I give a lot of benefit of the doubt to Hillary Clinton related to Benghazi. And I give a lot of benefit of the doubt to President Obama regarding Syria, even though I'm kind of troubled by the fact that we told the world that we had a stopping point and we didn't live up to that. I -hmm. still understand that I don't know all of the facts. And also there aren't rights and wrongs, you know, (laughs) and and there's effective in the moment versus effective in the long term. And these are complex things. So I'm with you 100 percent on recognizing that there is no decision that makes everybody happy and people are doing the best they can in really, really hard circumstances. With Hillary Clinton, for me, it is a pattern of what seem like unforced errors that lead me to think on a personal level, she and Bill Clinton tend to elevate or prioritize 
their own privacy, their own wealth over public issues. So it's not any one thing in isolation. It's not just the Wall Street speeches or just the emails or just the latest revelation about contact between the Clinton Foundation and the State Department. It's all of those things in one pattern and practice. And and all I'm saying is we should still be talking about those things, even though her opponent is Donald Trump, because at the very least, we should know what we're voting for and we should impose some accountability and we should say, like, this can't happen again. We cannot have a Clinton administration that continues to behave this way. So maybe all of it in retrospect can be explained away or we can say, well, everybody has behaved this way. But let's at least stand up as a public now and say no more of this. Yeah. And I I will say that I think that there is a way to do this conversation well. And I know I sound like I work for Vox. I talk about them so much. But the the big piece they did where they talked about the gap between what people see, people who work for her and how people see Hillary. And they got to a really good criticism, which was, you know, this this fatalistic view of we never get a fair shot. So they're sort of dismissive instead of careful in the way that they should be. I thought was really, really well. Like, it, and, and I think because it took sort of, like you said, like a pattern of behavior instead of just one incident and just was like, well, you shouldn't have done this. I mean, I just don't think that's productive. So I thought the way that they sort of pieced out this pattern of behavior was very well done and sort of said like, okay, and this is how it's led them astray. And, you know, I have to believe that if Hillary Clinton sat down for that article for a 45-minute interview, she read the article when it was over and hopefully took some of that criticism to heart. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that there's something to be served from doing that and sort of finding a pattern of behavior and holding them accountable for it in the hopes that they will improve. I also think what's interesting is I think what RuPaul is talking about with Hillary and, you know, in general hit on another interesting idea that I encountered from a book by political philosopher Gerald Gauss called The Tyranny of the Ideal, Justice in a Diverse Society, which is that should we should not only hold pol- politicians to these ideals, but not our political system in general. And it was a it was such an interesting sort of idea that basically we just strive to get better instead of trying to get to a particular idea. And they use this metaphor of climbing a mountain. You just try to get up the mountain. And so the idea was like, well, what if you're on the wrong mountain? Like, what if you, you're trying to get up the mountain, but the, the right system, this perfect ideal, be it, you know, socialism or progressivism or communism or whatever, means you have to go back down the mountain. And basically their argument was like, yeah, but it hurts so many people to blow up the mountain you're on to get on another mountain. And you really never know because it's impossible to know how that will work until you're on it, if that's a better mountain or not, basically. And I just thought it was like, really interesting because there's a lot of discussion with in particular with third parties, which I don't have a a ton of patience for, which is, you know, it's just, it's not ideal. We want this perfect ideal of a a society and in in a democracy like ours, we're never going to get that idea. So why, you know, blow it up in an attempt because we're too diverse and nobody's ever going to agree whatever you think is the perfect idea. I don't know. I just thought it was the idea of the ideal political system as as, in conjunction with the ideal politician was a really interesting intellectual exercise. Well, this is why some of the reasons that I'm a Republican are so boring to listen to (laughs) because what I really value is the process because of exactly this, right? Like 
we're there isn't necessarily a right or a wrong. Everything is contextual and not right or wrong in general. Like there are some things that I think are right and some that I think are wrong. But talking politically, it's always a series of judgment calls at a moment in time. So what I think is important is the process by which we make decisions against that landscape. And part of what I love about Gary Johnson, speaking of third parties, he will say, well, like, here's the libertarian answer to your question, but there's a Congress. Like, I don't get to just waltz into the White House Mm -hmm. and cut five departments because there's a Congress and there's a process. And what I think he really believes in is the process in a lot of ways. And I think that's not saying it has to be a perfect system. It's saying it has to be a system that has a set of shared expectations and rules so that as we grapple with all of these perspectives, we're doing it in a way that ultimately we can all agree with the legitimacy of that way. That's part of what is really driving me crazy. I think, you know, the media has made a lot of many of the things Donald Trump has said throughout the entire campaign. There's really not a way to put any limit around that sentence. But um, the thing that I think has been the scariest in a lot of ways recently is this idea that the election is going to be somehow rigged. Mm -hmm. That is an enormously troubling statement because institutional trust is one of the very few things that is the that forms the foundation of our democracy right so if you start questioning even the legitimacy of an election i don't know what happens from there so i i agree with a lot of what you're saying about how you're just incremental progress we're just trying to get better all the time um for me what we can't be compromising about are the rules as we climb that mountain. I think that's fair. And I think that's totally different than, I mean, basically what people argue is the argument of, well, I hope Trump wins and he just sort of blows the whole thing up so we can fresh start that that's wanting to break every rule so that, and you can rewrite them. And that's a totally different ball game and not one. I think many really can fathom the repercussions of. I, I agree with that. I have concerns with either Trump or Clinton about how executive authority might be used, because if we have a continuation of the Obama administration, I mean, I think that one outcome of this election that's likely is that no one wins with a a real mandate around ideas. So let's say that we have a Hillary Clinton presidency, maybe we have a Democratic Senate, Republican House, something like that. I think we're still going to have this polarization where not everyone is saying, okay, how can we all work together to get things done as much as we would like for that to happen? And so if you continue the Obama administration's approach to like, well, Congress is ineffective, so I'm going to go around them, I start to get really concerned about where that goes in terms of the rules. And then I think Donald Trump is, is even more of a risk. And if you couple those concerns with Supreme Court vacancies, I mean, we're like, this is such a consequential election. It really is. Well, and, you know, I read it. The New York Times is doing a big series on uh, the Obama era. And the first thing they released today was his uh, use of of administrative regulations to really push his agenda once he realized that Congress wasn't going to do anything. And, you know, 
I remember at the time there was a lot of talk of Bush using a lot of executive orders. And I think every, you know, president says, and they talked a lot about how Barack Obama did not want to do this, but that just basically felt like it was his only choice. And I think that the reason you see so much emphasis on the presidential election in those years is because I think that the American people sort of intrinsically understand that this is what's happening. As Congress refuses to act, more and more power is being taken over by the executive. And that's a, that's a conversation we really need to have as a nation. And I don't know the right answer, but you know, I think that the idea that this is all Obama's fault because he did this is a very simplistic, and I'm not saying this is your view, but like just the general criticism of, well, Barack Obama issued all these regulations and it's just all this hardship and it's all his fault. I mean, at a certain point, if nothing's getting done, everybody has to take responsibility for it. Yeah, and, but I think our system is, I mean, we've talked about this, our system is designed for not a lot to get done. But that's not what's happening right now. I mean, this is the most inactive Congress in history. They've passed the, the, the smallest amount of legislation, I think, basically like ever. I mean, it's not just that they are instituting incremental change. They're not instituting any change. I mean... Mitch McConnell stood up at Fancy Farm and said his proudest accomplishment was telling Barack Obama he wasn't going to do his job when it came to a Supreme Court vacancy. Yeah, and, and he said, you know, I mean, it's obstructionist. I don't think that that is. I think we're in a different. We're in a different thing is happening now. I mean, I even from the contract of America, even when that group came in. I mean, you, you know, I was reading about. I'm about to do a, a pantsu primer on welfare, so I was reading about welfare reform. At least they did something. I mean, I, you're just not seeing anything come out of the Congress. So I agree that it is beyond uh, the healthy tension and slow pace designed by our Constitution. But I think the remedy for that is for us as voters to send those people home, not for our executive to expand its powers. That's what I mean about the rules mattering. Because But aren't we back again to the beginning, which is it's really not the it's not the players, it's the game. I think it's both. I think the players also have to decide that the rules are more important than the agenda in a historical perspective. Because what if Donald Trump won this election and had Democrats in the Senate and the House and Democrats were standing up saying, we're going to make sure that nothing Donald Trump wants to advance will happen because it's wrong. It's not what our country stands for. It's racist. It's xenophobic, etc. And most of us would agree with those things. And Donald Trump said, well, my Congress isn't getting anything done, so I'm going to issue executive orders. We can't have that. We fundamentally cannot have that. And any time we say, well, the circumstances have shifted, so the rules have to shift, we set the table for the rules to shift in a way that is really scary down the road. Well, I think mainly um, an interesting distinction. I don't think the executive orders is as um, quite as bad. I just looked up the chart of all the executive orders issued by presidencies. And I, for some reason, thought that Bush issued a bunch more than Clinton, and then Obama maybe issued more than Bush, but it's actually the opposite. Clinton had 364, Bush had 291, and Obama is at 244. Fun fact Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 3,721 executive orders. Yeah, and I mean, I think con the consequence of those executive orders versus, like, I don't know the substance of all of those, but. There, like we do have to look at like what type of orders are those, right? Yeah, but still, just the sheer number is amazing. I, I think that I don't know. I'm back to my original pragmatic eek. I don't know if once I, you know, I, I totally understand your point about executive orders and how scary is it if we think about 
President Donald Trump. But, you know, I think that in the current system, I think we're just balancing each other out. You know, from when they talked about Obama, they said that basically like the the regulators were just itching to do stuff because they had been held back from what, you know, from a lot what a lot of the sort of career bureaucrats wanted to do during the Bush administration. And so it's not like both sides aren't doing these things. That's right. It's not know. a partisan issue. No. It's just And so I wonder if it's just another checks and balance, right? If one party does it and another party is like, eh, let's ease this back. We don't like this so much. And the next party comes in. So, you know, it might not be particularly with regards to sort of the executive orders and administrative regulations, if there's not more of a balancing act within the executive branch, since the legislative branch is refusing to do anything. And I don't really think that with regards to Congress, I mean, as far as voters, I really, I mean, I don't know if it's just enough to vote for, to kick that person out. I think there needs to be a a more f- a focused effort to assert why we are unhappy as voters and to say, you know, sort of your, I'm a single issue voter and that issue is compromise. But, you know, there's other bigger things at play, like the the gerrymandering of the districts and, you know, all the stuff comes into importance. And it's just it's simplistic to think that there's going to be, you know, that just the people sitting there are the problems. And again, I'm not saying that you're saying that's the sole problem, but I think it, it the the sort of narrative becomes we'll just kick the bums out. But it's I don't know. I just don't think it's that it's it would it would be that easy if we don't under if we don't address the the pressures on those bums that make them do the things in the first place. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
there's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I totally agree with that. And I think that we should try sending people home. We don't do that much. I mean, the incumbent rate for re-election remains high, even as Congress's approval ratings are abysmal. Once you're there, it's much easier to stay there than it was to get there in the first place. We really don't use the remedies available to us. We just complain. Mm. And I think and I think part of that is because we don't have enough people running and we don't have enough people running Because we're mean to the people who run. So it's a vicious circle that we're in. Here's where I think our real disagreement is, even though we agree on a lot of kind of what the output should be. I do feel that there is a place for political idealism if what that means is having a higher standard going forward for ethics and transparency. And I don't think it is – that's one issue that I'm willing to be pretty strident about. And I understand that Republicans – we would not feel good if we saw a hack of the RNC's emails, I have a feeling, right? So I'm not not saying that one party or the other owns the moral high ground. What I am saying is that we should insist on that going forward. And we should say – Looking at these emails from the DNC leaks, we should say, this is not acceptable anymore. Maybe it was at one time. This doesn't mean we're going to throw a bunch of people in jail. We're going to take this, though, and say as a public, we don't want any more of this. And we are going to hold people accountable when we see it. And I think we should say to our administrative agencies, no more of this personal email right? Everything becomes a matter of public record because you're there to do the people's business. I think we should start imposing more accountability around these issues and have a little less tolerance for what's going on. And then I hope that in the process of doing that, we can also feel a little bit more gracious toward our public servants because that push-pull won't be there as much. Yeah, I just don't know if it's a chicken or the egg and which one needs to come first. You know, I don't know if it seems so self-perpetuating at this point that it's just hard to see our way out of it in a way because we there's so much distrust. You know, I was I was reading a really interesting article about Hillary Clinton's view towards money when you talked about sort of their drive to wealth. And I hadn't really thought about this, but apparently like when he lost, 
I don't remember if he was running for con- no. I think it was when he lost the governorship. You know, he lost, then he was reelected. Like they didn't have a place to live. They had no income, and they had an infant daughter. And it was basically up to her because apparently he was just, you know, wiped out by the loss of like, how do I provide for my family? What are we going to do? And I think we just sort of forget, you know, how people that want to have a life in public service, like, what standard of living are we comfortable with them having? Should we even have a say in that? If they have a, do they have a right to make money? You know, Jimmy Carter's sort of famous for being an ex-president who's only ever made money from writing his books. Like, what if you don't want to do that? You know, like how, what are the sort of requirements? It's like we think everyone who runs for public office should be just sort of independently wealthy, but is that what you want really either? Like there has to be some sort of push and pull. And again, I have this very personal sort of take on this. I'm lucky because my husband is our primary provider and he brings home an income, but I bring home an income too. And I had somebody basically tell me I should be knocking on doors for five to nine hours a day until the election. What would you do if you have a job? Like, what would you do if you want to serve the city of Paducah and you have a full-time job? Like, I mean, I have candidates I'm running against who have a full-time job. So it's just, it's like all these things that we ask people to do and then we sort of put them in these impossible positions. I don't know. It's just, I don't really think we've really engaged as a society on what we want from public servants, except for them to be perfect and not do anything we ever disagree with. Yeah, which is obviously not reality. I I just think that the fact that we have those layers of problems doesn't exempt anyone from a discussion of their particular issues. There's this article that I'll link up in the show notes that talks about, and and it's like the tone of it is a little bit not my style, but it talks about how like we can all just agree that Donald Trump says things that are outrageous. And the fact that every outrageous statement he makes uh, gets more coverage than any of the revelations coming out of the latest round of emails, that's a problem. Like it's not... It's not more newsworthy that Donald Trump has, surprise, said something horrible. It's still newsworthy. We should hold him accountable, too. It's it's like, let's have some perspective on both. We don't need to, like, stop the earth because Donald Trump made a comment about a baby crying in his rally. We can report on that. It's it's not unnewsworthy. <laughs> we can report on it. But we don't need to, like, breaking news about that. And then just kind of say, well, Hillary Clinton's emails are troubling, but like she's still better than he is. So moving on. And that's sort of the climate right now. And I think that erodes public trust and feeds this narrative of like, these are two horrible choices. And so maybe I'm just going to sit this out. Yeah, I hate that narrative. They're not both horrible choices. I mean, I think they're both horrible choices in some ways. I do. I don't think they're equally horrible. But but that's the thing, that when you say they're both horrible, it implies they're both equally horrible, which is, at this point, absurd. I'm sorry if that doesn't sound nuanced, but whatever, unless you're a conspiracy theorist who thinks she's been murdering people her whole life and is a secret lesbian, and then I don't think you'd be listening to our podcast. Whatever your problems are with her, like, they cannot reach the level Like, it's just, I mean, I'm sorry, I've lost all nuance on this. This man is abhorrent. He is abhorrent in his beliefs and the things he says and the things he does and the roles he has played in his life. I mean, just, I'm sorry, I have so little patience for that narrative. I think he's abhorrent. And I think she's very problematic as well. I think she has a lot of strengths. I feel like I've been very 
open about what I think her strengths are, but I think she's problematic too. And so it's yeah, but just problematic imp- and abhorrent are two different words. <laughs> well, I mean, so, so some people would, and I struggle with this line would, would take problematic past problematic and go into corruption. And that for me is not certain. My husband will roll his eyes when he hears me say that because it's certain for him <laughs> and, and a lot of people in my life, but I don't, need to use that label. What I need is for us to continue to vet those issues. It does not do justice to our process to say Donald Trump is abhorrent the end. That, that's well, just it's not the problem because process. the narrative in general is such a horse race. You can't talk about one without talking about the other at this point. And this is how we've we've decided to run presidential elections. You know, I don't know why, but I, I mean, I think that that you're right. I mean, in this sort of binary way is is difficult, but I don't see the national media changing that anytime soon. That's where I think the other parties have a lot of value and we can debate all day whether it's moral or pragmatic or wise to vote for a third party. But to the extent that third parties help us get clear on what's important to us and what we're really deciding, that's a really important role to play, especially. In well, and, but I guess back to my idealism thing, I think the reason I have a problem with the third parties at this point and why I really hope maybe a discussion around um, Evan McMullen. Did I say his name right? I want his name to have an X in it. I want it to be Mullenix. Don't ask me why. But anyway, <laughs> I hope that this this will help because to me, third parties never clarify the issues. They never help push the conversation forward because we're like having this very new, okay, we want to have this nuanced discussion about, let's say, okay, we're gonna, we're, we, ha- we want to have a nuanced discussion about the ethical requirements of our public servants and with regards to, you know, their communications while in office. And then Jill Stein pops up and says, vaccines are evil. Okay, what, how does that help the conversation at all? You know, it's when this, when the third parties inhabit sort of extreme positions, it's like, you know, there's not a third party that's a moderate party. There just isn't. Like, I think there are benefits of libertarianism, but it's not a moderate position. Well, libertarianism and, is not moderate, but I think Gary Johnson is moderate. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like, Just we like can't, Donald Trump's not a Republican. Help. That's the problem. Like, they don't, I don't feel like they move the conversation forward. They're like, we're talking about how, how short should we cut the grass? And they're off like, let's dig a pool. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the grass length. Why do you want to dig a pool? Focus. That's how I feel about third parties. Sorry. That wasn't very nuanced either. Hey, do you remember how we were going to make our episode shorter? Yeah, we got wrapped up. <laughs> so we're going to move on now to talk very briefly about bullet journaling. So Sarah, I am so intrigued that you are going to start doing bullet journaling. I've been reading about this. I have decided that I definitely need to give it a shot and wanted to hear how it's going for you so far. Okay, so here's what I decided. I could continue for the rest of my life to spend money on apps thinking that this time, this app was going to do it. And then I finally read this Fast Company article that was like, why are all the Todoist apps, or like, not sorry, not Todoist, that's a specific app. Why are all the productivity checklist apps terrible? And I was like, yeah, how come, you guys? But they didn't have a solution for it, so I was like, all right, let's try something else. And um, Ann Bogle, who writes for Modern Mrs. Darcy, who 
is a friend of mine and a podcaster and she's a big bullet journaler and she sort of t- worked on me at podcast movement and I really do like to write things down and I've tried planners. I like having a written planner, but that was just not quite right. It wasn't fitting what I wanted. Like what I really want is something in which I can do sort of uh, five minute journaling at the begin at the end of the day and think through like, what did I do today? What do I want to do tomorrow? Because doing it all at a week at a time doesn't really work for me because my schedule changes so much with my kids. So I wanted something like that I could work through at night, but that I could also use to like make checklists. And also because I have so many different projects, I have like a charity thing I'm planning, my campaign, the podcast, my blog, my clients, and then each individual client, like I needed sort of some sort of like task list for my project management systems. And I've tried online ones because I know y'all are going to like blow me up and be like, did you try Trello? Did you try? I've tried them all. I swear I have. But I think that so far now, listen, I'm only like a weekend, not even that, but writing it down in this sort of analog system in which you really, they call it, there's modifiers and signifiers. And then you migrate, you migrate the task along each day. I mean, so far, I'm really feeling it. I'm really feeling writing down the analog situation. It's not that I don't ever use my phone to capture something quick if my notebook is like not right there, but I don't know. So far, so good. Well, I read this article about how the brain really does process what you write mm-hmm. with your hand differently than what's on a screen. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I also like how this is so free form. Like you can just kind of do your thing with it. And it's, it almost feels to me like permission to not have a system because you're just keeping things really simple and you're just letting yourself figure out how you process information. And I am really drawn to it because I think, I don't know, I would think that you feel this way too, Sarah. Like, I feel like I'm at a bunch of in like kind of an inflection point in my life because of a bunch of things that are happening at one time. But it all just keeps happening, so I don't get to process any of it. Mm-hmm. So it, so everything feels like a mini trauma. Even the really good stuff feels yeah. sort of traumatic right now. And there's absolutely no way that I could sit down and say, like, I'm going to think this shit out now. Like, it's just not going to happen. But if I could just have some bullet points and have this this book that's with me all the time to just occasionally deal with some of that, I think that could be really helpful. Yeah, because when I would try to put it online, like the truth is like the screen or whatever, it really never looks like my brain and how I process things. And that's what you're right. It's like totally customizable. You can, you do, you do sort of a future log that's six months out and then you do a monthly log and then you do daily logs or you can not, you don't have to do it that way. But then in between there, you just keep an index. So if you decide, wait, I want to list these ideas for shows for fancy politics and you just make sure you put it in your index, you have numbered pages and then you're like, yep, I need to get that out. And it's really, it's that, I think what bullet journaling is very, does very well at is sort of, I I read a great phrase for it. It was like externalizing or it's just basically getting it out of your mind so you can think clearer. And I think that has really helped me a lot. Like I'm not saying, actually I have been incredibly productive, even though my husband's been out of town the last few days, but it just getting it down. It's sort of like, you know, the getting things done method. If you can just get it out of your brain, you'll be so much more productive and it's helping me do that. Well, I'm going to put in the show notes an article from the Lazy Genius Collective about this, that if you get scared by hearing modifiers and signifiers or whatever, this will alleviate all of that pressure. And I will put a link to the journal I bought that's super fancy and German and nice. (laughs) 
I am going to start with one of probably 30 empty journals that I have that I bought intending to like really get it done this time um, before I invest in a super fancy one just to see how it goes for me. But I'm I'm pretty excited to try it out. And if any of you bullet journal, I would love to hear about that. Yeah, tell me. Give us your tips, y'all. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Honestly, you guys, when there is a new iTunes review, it feels like Christmas morning to me. <laughs> thank you so much for those reviews. Uh, we have a listener who asked for something comparable for Android. We're going to work on that and get back to you. And thank you so much for the question. You can follow us on Facebook at Pantsuit Politics, Twitter at Pantsuit Politics. We love hearing from you there. Uh, of course, you can go to our website, PantsuitPoliticsShow.com, to listen to older episodes, get our email addresses, read our blog. And we will talk with you again on Friday. Keep it in mind, y'all.